Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the Ruler Podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson and this is the podcast for issue 63, the Tour de France issue. I'm delighted to say that two of our guests have uh, worn the yellow jersey in the tour. One of them hasn't, but you're welcome anyway, Ned Bolton. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, how's your season been so far, Ned? I've got to commentate on a whole lot of bike races, and it's been great. Some of them pretty good, actually. The Giro was uh, yeah. well, it was a belter this year. Yeah, my it? first experience of the Giro d'Italia, and it is uh, different in nature, different in the environment. There's different gig altogether. Um, and uh, I can I now see, having always looked on it from afar and read those kind of probably in Rouleau magazine, really, those kind of editorial pieces that say, it's all about the Giro. You know, the Tour de France is neither here nor there. For me, the Giro is the heart and soul of cycling. I, having been on the race now, kind of get what they mean a little bit because uh, there's something a little bit special about that race. And it, listen, it was a particularly good addition this year as well. Well, later on, we'll be hearing from Chris Boardman, um, but we're also joined, I'm delighted to say, by David Miller. David, welcome. Thank you. We're in Ealing Studios, home of some of the best British films ever made, and uh, Downton Abbey as well. <laughs> uh, why are we here? It's brilliant, isn't it, David, this place? It's Absolutely amazing. amazing. Yeah. It, is, uh, it is just uh, wrapped in history. It's pretty incredible. There's a pub across the road about two down where you go in there. It's got all black and white photos of like Peter O'Toole and, and other great sort of actors sitting there. And kind of, you just think, yeah, and you read all the boards, you see the photographs. And none of us, I think the modern generation, we have no idea about Ealing Studios. Yeah. But there's a couple of generations before us where it was synonymous with, with British filmmaking and, and the kind of the, the industry that once existed here. But do you remember when we were doing the Vuelta here? So the, in other words, we commentate from here. There's a facility, television facilities house that lives here, but that's neither here nor there, really. Ealing Studios is about so much more and we were doing the Vuelta here David do you remember and after we came off air one day we just wandered off and we broke oh, into the model right. shop yeah, do yeah. you remember yeah and it was just Doctor Who everywhere the original TARDIS the very original TARDIS was in there and, uh, and so, Davros yeah. Davros the uh, lead Dalek yeah. chap yeah. yeah so it's become actually it's, it's kind of strange because last year did the, we do the Vuelta from here as well so we do the Dauphiné and the Vuelta from here commentary so it's quite weird for me for somebody who lives in Spain I leave Spain to come to, <laughs> Eden, to commentate so it's a, it kind of makes it a little bit easier to know we're in a we're somewhere that has a little is, feels a bit special when you're here we're not hopefully uh, shattering too many people's illusions to say that you're not always at the races you're commentating on no, I think that's blindingly obvious. I get uh, on my I cycle into work essentially, you know, on the Dauphiné, <laughs> for example, and quite often at traffic lights I get busted by people who were watching the highlights the night before. The so bottom line is you don't you don't see much 
well, much less than you would do if you're on the race. Because when you're at the race, you're racing around and you kind of you get to that you're sitting in a box as well. So it's actually a lot more. We've got teams of people on the ground over there, and you got a Daniel Freed now who's out there, kind of on the ground and gives us information. But it's actually a much better working environment at these other races. Tour de France is different because everybody's there, but for these races, it's quite good. It allows us to kind of focus on the job. And you are going to be at the Tour de France this year. Yep. Yep, yeah, certainly. My number 14, I think. And how many of you? You rode 12. 12. Race 12 to the Francis. I've done, yeah. done another one with you. So yeah. 13. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Are you looking forward to it? It sounds a, sounds a ridiculous question, but are you looking forward to it? No, it's a very good question because sometimes I leave home with a heavy heart like anyone who has to travel for a living. <laughs> you know, it is a job. But, no, I'm particularly looking forward to this one. I don't know. I've got a real, t- I've got a real tingle about this one. I think it's wildly unpredictable, not necessarily because of the parkour, which is quite conservative, reasonably standard format, but because of the constellation of riders. And I'm not just talking about the GC race either. I think the sprinters' competition is fascinating. And uh, no, I think there's so much to look forward to. Yeah, and for me, it'll be in the last couple of Tour de France. I've made more kind of cameo appearances, whereas this year I'll be on it the for the duration. And actually, so I kind of feel. It's been quite a good halfway house for me till now, the last couple of years, kind of just dropping in and out. Whereas this year, it's fully, I'm f- properly working behind the barriers full time. So that's, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. How are you finding the transition from pro to commentator and all your other activities as well? Uh, yeah, no, getting, getting the hang of it. I mean, it is a massive <laughs> transition. So it's kind of, I've been very lucky in that these opportunities have arisen. I've been very lucky with the fact that cycling has, I'm, I'm kind of, as my career has has dwindled, um, cycling in the in the, the British world has been escalating, kind of. So it's been a quite nice place to meet. I my descending spiral has encountered an ascending spiral, and I've just managed to jump on that one. But yeah, and no, I, I kind of, and especially with the TV stuff, that's been great for me because it keeps me in the racing without actually being in the racing. If you get what I mean, because I was the reason I retired was because I was just over it really. And you were never tempted to work on the team or be a DS or anything like that? No, I had the best job in cycling, being a racer. And so I kind of loved that. And and so that was the reason I stopped. If I'd wanted to keep working with teams, I'd have managed to find the wherewithal to keep being a, a racing cyclist. But the moment that stopped, it was like, I'm out. I didn't want to do anything else. I think from ITV's point of view, when David's Tour de France career came to a sticky end in those sort of famous circumstances a couple of years ago when he wasn't selected from Garmin, it was at that moment, uh, it's something, we'd, funnily enough, as a team, we'd never actually articulated or spoken about. But we all knew the moment that David himself broke that news that he wasn't going to be on the tour, that it was incredibly important that we, we had to get David Miller on board. I and mean, he had to be part of the team, not just because he's thoughtful and articulate um, and was, is clearly going to be, a, you know, was always going to be and is a good broadcaster. Um, um, and because of his achievements on a bike um but also because of his you know his own checkered history that he's written about because you know we're not we're not we're not cycling in a 100% clean era and it's an ongoing story and there will come a time i'm sure on the on the tour in the future or another bike race where the subject needs to be addressed again of doping and david is um you know he he's a he's a credible person to talk to in an honest and engaging way about that issue as well as his understanding of, of racing. So, I mean, the, the numbers of different boxes ticked by this guy sitting alongside me here is, um, just meant that we had to get him. So I'm, you, glad, I'm glad he's part of the team. Do you feel any of that pressure, David, to 
be sort of a representative of the riders of the newer generation as as, as well as a impartial commentator? Uh, no, it's never been pressure. It's a responsibility. It's kind of something that I always said, the reason I got a second chance. Well, I got a second chance, and with that came a kind of... Uh, a responsibility to kind of pay it back and so that's what it is it's never been but i'm in a, a strange place at the moment because i'm very independent of everything so the uci will kind of want me to be a represent cpa will the media the riders but i i kind of just sit in this kind of this ethereal place where i don't actually represent anybody which gives me a much stronger and much kind of a more independent i think valid voice than i don't like I think everybody's so confused in cycling. I'm in a nice place, place where I can just say what I, I believe, thanks to all my experiences. I don't know if you've read um, Chris Boardman's book, but um, in I it, have. It's a good book, actually, isn't it? It's, yeah, he wrote it himself, which yeah. you know, like David. In fact, there you go. Not many. In fact, uh, we work with two of them. No, and the, um, very few uh, and far between sportsmen and women who write their own material. And the books benefit from that, I think, because there's a much 100%. more genuine yeah. uh, voice throughout. Uh, throughout well, there's more both detail. Of there's more yeah. detail. Uh, but in it, he talks about his early experiences uh, in the commentary uh, chair, and uh, that Hugh Porter would yeah. uh, manoeuvre things. So he was deliberately forced. He would deliberately force uh, Chris <laughs> Boardman to pronounce the name of some Kazakh domestique <laughs> that he couldn't pronounce. Has there been any of that in your? Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I did the World Championships with Hugh, and uh, it was, that was my first with BBC. What was that? That was Valkenberg, I think, about three years ago, four years ago. And, you know, he's kind of, he is the, the doyen, him and Phil Liggett, of kind of cycling commentary in, in, that we know. But, yeah, when you're in there, and he has a very old, old sort of fashion system, how he does it, and it's kind of, he is the lead commentator, he is the boss, and it's like, and you will conform to, to how he wants to present things and what information he wants to transmit. So yeah, you really are playing second fiddle to Hugh, but you know, that's, that's the way he works. Very contrary to Ned, where it's like, it's lovely, it's kind of symbiotic relationship. Has it taken a while to develop that relationship? Because um, it, it is actually a, a sort of weird partnership, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> no, it is. And also, um, moving from my previous incarnation as a presenter and a reporter into commentating is i mean i had hesitate to say it's as different but it's not far off as different as the transition that david's making because commentary is such a unique and specific role in broadcasting the two do not overlap you know um they are totally different so i'm learning a new trade from scratch um and it and i i would maintain that i mean i've worked in other sports started off in football for years and years but I would maintain that uh, cycling is probably one of the hardest sports there is to commentate on because there are 198 biographies and stories to know something about, enough about to recognise <laughs> on the road. Um, and it's covered just by the nature of the, the event in a slightly haphazard way, you know. I mean, the television cameras can't be everywhere, can they? They can't. There is no camera one like you get in a football match where you can see all 22 players from that one shot and see roughly what they're up to. This, that doesn't exist. Uh, David, I'll ask you a question I asked uh, Chris Boardman uh, as well, which is, uh, do you look back on any of your tours or many of your tours with any fondness? No, no, no. I, I kind of always find good things. Even if it was a bad turn finishing, that was amazing. <laughs> so it was like, no. I've always had a very... Um, Chris and I are very different now. I was a born road racer. He wasn't. It was something that he went into and kind of... It was never his vocation. It was sort of a vehicle. He was talented at it. He'd find what he'd tick boxes, very much like Bradley. Actually, I mean, Bradley never loved it. It was tick boxes, you know. They're, they're very much. That's why they were so good. 
I think they were very rational athletes, very calculated, very kind of objective orientated, whereas I was just kind of out there having a laugh really. And so kind of I was just very passionate and emotional in my racing. So yeah, no, I I, I kind of loved it all. Apart from just at the end where it just started. But even then I was gutted. You know. So no, I I was a lover of it all. I hadn't realised until I read Chris's book quite how alien that whole, you know, continental road racing scene was to him really. But you know, he parachuted in in ninety four when he won that fastest ever prologue in Lille. That was his debut on the Tour de France, you know, first first ever outing. And really, his you know, it wasn't just the Tour de France. His road racing experience was very limited up until that point. I hadn't really appreciated that until I read his book. And, and you know, all that, riders like David and Roger Hammond and, 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 um, all that, all those generations of, of British riders who had to go and sort of slum it in Ghent and, you know, go off and join the Belgian teams or in David's case, French teams. Boardman just had a neat way of completely circumnavigating all of that by being brilliant on the track, winning that Olympic gold medal that was just his ticket. You know, yeah, so he just leapfrogged himself right into the highest echelons of road racing. It's an extraordinary story, really. And at the time when actually continental road racing was even more different to the, to the UK scene than it is now. Hell yes, yeah. I would imagine it was a, in lots of ways a gnarly and unpleasant world, yeah. No, because I mean the, the road racing scene now is much more... Um it's become anglicised. Yeah. It's much more scientific. It's the, the lingua franca is now English, whereas when we went into it in the 90s, it was essentially the same as it had been for decades. It was still the, the, the old sport with the kind of with a shiny, colour, more colourful version. But no, no. I mean, now it's in this last 20 years, it's completely changed. It's a much easier environment to go into. Like, well, easier, a different, culturally easier. At least coffee just don't speak English, do they? None no, of no, they still English. stand by that, don't they? <laughs> The cough. <laughs> We've got a copy of uh, Ruler Edition 63 here. Um, any uh, photographs in there? That I liked the uh, Sagan one. Well, it's actually two. It's also like the Team Time Troll of ours, because that's actually whichever page that was with the eggs. Uh, I just saw it flick by. Ned will find it, because I remember the other page. 158 of Peter Sagan coming through at that corner. Because it's a classic shot of him. He's clearly breaking all the rules of cycling. Looks like he's, yeah, this one as well. That's um, page 103, 102, 103, the old double page spread. That's the uh, Garmin Team Time. Yeah, right? because that was one of our, the races that each one of the guys in that, there's, there's five of us. There's 2009 Tour de France. 2009 Tour de France, Team Time shows. Daisy yeah. Brisky Rider, Hedgestel, Christian Vandervelde, Bradley Wiggins, and me. And for each one of us, if you ask each what was the hardest day racing, all of us will say that's in our top three ever, which is a rare thing to have five guys unified will say that. We just went deep that day. So you can, can just looking at that photo. But in the Peter Sagan 158, that's um, it's brilliant because he, he just looks... I mean, look at this picture here. Here it is. It's right here. It's, um, it's just bonkers how, how he it appears. That's breaking all the rules. If you look at it, he's pedaling in the corner for starters. Mm-hmm. It's like his body kind of... Look at the, the stress that the back tie's under. It's kind of almost kind of bending. And, and he's already he's looking out and his fingers are off the brake. And it's just like, that's just sagging all over. Nobody else would have that on, an, on kind of, the, he's still in the kind of the apex of the corner and he's already getting ready to go. You can see his whole body's tensing. I mean, look at his leg. That's, yeah. it's, everything's under stress. see the muscle on his calf. Everything's you? ready to go there. Nobody else does that. So that just goes to show what he's like. He just breaks all the rules of physics, basically. <laughs> Isn't it brilliant that he's the world champion? I just oh, love yeah, the yeah. fact that he's done it. Even if he never does it again, he's done it once. No, no. Amazing. How about you, Ned? Um, well, I've, it, he was hogging the book, so I'm, I'm actually flicking through it now. There's a nice shot of Roman Bardet, but I'm not going to go for that. Um, 
No, I'll go for that shot that you noticed when you were flicking through it of um, that enormous hydroelectric dam. I think it's in the French Alps. I've been there quite often, yeah, actually. Tour goes there fairly often, and you end up driving over it or driving past it. And um, But the photograph is taken at just the moment when um, all the team buses are driving across the top of it, and they're all ranged out there, and it's deeply, deeply impressive. Mm. And it says a lot about the scale of, you know, the grandeur of the race. Yeah, Isn't no, it funny that the... the, the um, you know, you asked me right at the beginning of this, you asked me about the Giro and what other races I'd done this season. And, you know, I've done quite a lot of the Belgian classics and I even went out to one of the desert races. And the way that the cycling season progresses, every, at every point as it evolves, um, you think, oh, this is great. I'm glad this bit of the racing has come around. And, you know, I'm not glad it's the Belgian classics now. And I'm glad it's not very few people now. They say, I'm glad it's the Ardennes classics, but, you know, they have their place as well. And then the Giro comes along and everyone kind of forgets about the Belgian classics. And then even those people who say it's all about the Giro, if they look at themselves and they're honest with themselves and their heart of hearts, when July comes around and the big one rears its head, it's still the big one, isn't it? And yeah, that uh, picture we're talking about is on page 141 yeah. of edition 63. And it's the Emerson Dam, um, the steepest in the world, apparently. So I am going to ask you um, to uh, predict a winner. Oh. Uh, for this year's tour. Um, but before that, uh, we're going to be hearing from Chris Boardman. And I should warn listeners of a sensitive disposition that Mr Boardman, during this interview, does use some bad language. Uh, so if you're listening to this with uh, young children, or as David Duffield used to say, uh, send Granny out of the room, because uh, at one point Mr Boardman does use some strong language. So welcome to the Ruler podcast, Chris Boardman. Good to have you here. Thank you very much. Um, your book, uh, Triumphs and Turbulences, uh, just out. Was it a cathartic experience for you to, to put that book together and to write that book? I think it was exactly that, um, and it was very difficult. I, mean, uh, we tried to, I tried to use a ghostwriter to start with, did one chapter. <clears throat> Good writer. Um, but I read the first chapter and thought, that's not me. That's not what I'd focus on. That's not what I'd major on. And I realised immediately that I had to write it myself, which is, uh, which is the main reason it's two and a half years later. <laughs> um, very, very hard process. Um, but it does, it forces you to distill things and choose, which is the most hardest bit, choose experiences. So many novel experiences that you bump into through sport. Um, and that was really very, very hard. And I think the most difficult bit is what you leave out. Also, a lot of your career was pre-internet, and that must make it a bit of a challenge as well. It did. Um, uh, research, that was quite a, quite an unpleasant realisation that you couldn't just go online, which we're all used to now, and researching. And sometimes you get a bit of information that's, that people have um, photographed and photocopied, put online, and it is there. But there was a, a lot of having to go and talk to people. And my memory's appalling. I've just ma mastered the kids' names and... You know, past last week, I really struggled. So with that was a real challenge. But I had uh, the editor, uh, Gary Imlach, who I worked with on the Tour de France, is probably the best wordsmith that I uh, that I know. Is relentless about uh, you know about making sure it is correct and factually correct because he knows people will pick and um, and he's you know a true perfectionist. Um, and I remember once receiving a picture of the pet shop where I bought the dog 15 years ago, which he'd somehow found uh, to show me that I'd spelt the word McCombs wrong. So with that kind of uh, tutor, it, it's difficult to go astray. If we didn't know it before, we sort of do reading the book, uh, know that you don't seem to be a person who can do anything 
by halves. Did this become a bit of an, uh, of an obsession for you? Um, it made it a very anxious and uh, difficult thing to, to get down on paper because I wanted to I want to do the best job that I can. I wanted to be good and I want to be able to wanted to be able to walk away thinking, right, well whatever anybody thinks of it, that was as good as I can be. And, I, and it's an approach at the risk of sounding a little bit flowery. It's a, it's the approach I've taken with life. I've never done a job where I didn't enjoy it. I've never done something for the salary to pay the mortgage. It's always been let's match the mortgage to what it is that you want to do. And it's an approach that's worked well and I've managed to do lots of interesting things. But I like to be immersed in something. I like to understand it fully. I like to take it apart, see how it works. And that could be a piece of writing or, or writing for a magazine or making bikes or riding bikes, whatever it was. It's the fascination of understanding and being best, the best you can be at it, which is, uh, which is the thrill. The extraordinary thing that really comes across in the book is is the change in a relatively short space of time. Because we're not talking about you know sort of Hugh Porter's career here. We're talking you know, a career that was effectively started in the nineties, really, mm. um, at a time when cycling was an amateur sport, mm. when you were scrimping and saving and desperately trying to make ends meet. And by the end of the book, or sort of three quarters of the way through the book, you're uh, you're part of the multi-million pound metal factory. Mm. Uh, it was an extraordinary journey to go on, wasn't it? It was an amazing time to be involved uh, in cycling. And they, uh, sometimes you just get information and people who come together. And Peter Keane was that for me. And Peter Keane uh, was fascinated by how things work. and make, He was a coach before he even realised he was a sports science background. And um, we got together and Pete devised... And, and tested with me at you know, like a process for learning. It was all about the performance. It almost didn't matter what the result was. It was a case of what do we expect to happen? What actually happened? Oh, wow, there's a big gap there. What caused that? What can we do about it? So he, he gave me um, a fascination with the journey rather than just the destination, which which kept me interested for, for years. And I think that the event in, I mean, 92 Barcelona was, I guess, the bit that people notice. Um, where it became visible what, what I was capable of and what we were doing. Um, and I, the importance of that event really was for Peter because that was the event where Peter Key gained the credibility he needed that when five years later lottery funding came along and they didn't know what to do with this this lovely influx of money to sport to win gold medals. And so Pete got to put his hand up and say, well, actually, I've got a plan I've been honing for quite a few years. And they went, great, and they gave him the money and he set up um, a British cycling, what would become known as the Metal Factory. He sought out and employed Dave Brailsford, who took over from him, who went on and set up Team Sky and so on and so forth. So there is a lineage there. Um, I would say, um, and it, uh, it isn't false modesty, that I wasn't the important part of it, Peter was, and that event gave him the credibility to start that, that particular journey. So, And it's been an incredible time to be involved, uh, probably more so on the other side of the fence, working with British Cycling and having a coffee with Dave Brailsford uh, after 2004, um, talking about how it's going, effectively a debrief, and saying, well, the coaching's going really well now, and, and tactically we're getting a lot better, but what about all the other stuff? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's all this other stuff, isn't there? There's, there's, like a, there's helmets and there's clothing and there's wheels, and all that stuff. So, uh, so I became head of stuff over a cup of coffee. Go and have a look at all that stuff. Um, I'm working with a group of half a dozen people. We spent, over the next eight to nine years we conducted just under 20,000 tests and experiments in an attempt to understand stuff and make people go faster and of course even with with a really good budget and weeks in wind tunnels 
we didn't have to have any commercially viable product at the end. We just had to make people go faster. And that was, I would say for an adult, is a, is a unique experience to have all that come together. There are sort of hints in the book when you talk about British cycling that there was an element of tension oh, yeah. in, in, in the setup right from the start, in the, in the new setup right mm. from the start. Um, with that in mind, what is your sort of perspective on the sort of recent meltdown we had and uh, uh, the Shane Sutton incident? I think you put it in a good way, really, because that tension was critical. One of the things I, I or sort of realised and observed early on is that people being really happy does not equal good performance because when people are being the best that they can be they're uncomfortable and Dave coined one of his many phrases uh, we're comfortable being uncomfortable what he really meant was I'm comfortable with you being uncomfortable and so so the senior management team which which uh, was myself uh, Steve Peters Dave Railsford and Shane Sutton were very very different characters but that's what made it effective if you if you imagine looking at an object, we were all looking at it from a different place, and so we saw more of that thing. Uh, so we less slipped through the net, and we ate, slept, and drank it. And that team looked after, managed, supported, and controlled each other. Uh, and I think that's why it worked. And it was um, another term was was compassionately ruthless, which was it was about gold medals. That was the only yardstick that was used in the building because that was the, and people are forgetting this now, that that's what lottery funding was for, winning gold medals. Not about improving sports, making it more accessible. It was just about winning gold medals. And that was our yardstick. So when somebody was underperforming, they would have uh, regular reviews and come in and say, right, this is how we've looked at every aspect. This is where you are at the moment. Um, it doesn't look like you're heading for a gold medal. So this is what you need to do to get there and we will do everything in our power to get you there and then if we come back here in say two months time and you're not there you're gone and, and I think uh, it was a good uh, honest ethos to live by what happened in the last six or seven years um, since I, I don't know but uh, that's how it used to be and it was it was effective you also talk in the book about the personal revelation at the 92 Olympics just before going on to the the track and the effect that that had on you can you tell us about that yeah um I, I worked with a psychologist by the name of john sire for many years before barcelona but we became friendly largely to do with the the team pursuit event and trying to get the team pursuit to work well together and it wasn't very effective actually <laughs> but through that um john and i became friends he's a very quiet guy worked mostly in business um, did some sport with tottenham hotspur the year they won the cup um, but very quiet, you wouldn't know he was there. Um, he became a friend, he was in Barcelona, and I asked him if he'd just almost keep me company, really, in the hours leading up to the final. Because, you, as you mentioned earlier, I was an unemployed carpenter with a wife, two kids, and no money when that final took place. <clears throat> and to face the prospect of having four and a half minutes to change the rest of your life, or not, as the case may be, with 60-odd million people worldwide watching... It's quite a lot of pressure to take. So John and I were, uh, an hour before the event, we're just sitting under the track, um, trying to keep out of the ferocious sun, um, and just waiting, and it was horrific. And, and John, a, a psychologist, too, said, how are you feeling? And I said, I just feel awful. I just feel awful. I just want it to be over. And he said, yeah, that's fine. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, yeah, this is a big deal. You know, elation and despair are two sides of the same coin. Uh, if you want one, you've got to have the other. And I said, you're supposed to be making me feel better. And he said, well, what is it that you're worried about? 
and I went through a litany of, of you know what happens if I can't get out the starting gate or hit a sandbag or have a puncture or get the pacing wrong or the other guy's faster than me and I listed it stuff off for, for half a minute or so mumbled to a stop saying I you know I can only do my best and and he looked at me and smiled and there's a big pause which is the other thing psychologists tend to do a lot um, and and in that moment he he given me um, an anchoring thought. So when an hour later I was sat on the bike and the, and the, the last few seconds were ticking away, um, I just thought, fuck it, I'll just be the best that I can be and when I've crossed the line, I'll see what it's got me. And I wasn't, it was something that came up much later with Steve Peters, but suddenly I wasn't trying to win uh, an Olympic gold medal anymore. I was trying to do something that was completely within my control. And John had given me... Um, a mechanism to cope with with big it made me realize that it didn't matter what the stakes were you know millions of pounds even people's lives that's ultimately all you can do and don't try not to feel those things because you will feel those things that's what you do instead think about what you can do and focus on the things that you can control because ultimately that's the only option open to you do you look back on any of the tour de france you rode with, with fondness, if that's the right word. Um, no, I, I mean, I was very lucky in what was a very unpleasant era for cycling or, or turbulent. And it wasn't all horrendous. I mean, we look back now and we think you know, an era there was a lot of drug taking. Um, and we forget, you know, there was some good stuff in there and, and wonderful people and wonderful experiences. So it wasn't all bad and it's been written about for 20 years. So, you know, it's in the book, but it's not focused on primarily because it's been done it's been done better by other people we certainly shouldn't forget but it was more than just that uh, riding the tour de france is, is an incredible it's the most challenging physical challenge thing i think any sports person could do probably in any sport and to have finished the tour uh, twice to have finished it was something to have said that you've done really um and it was satisfying and i, I and i was lucky enough to have something i mean we understand understood aerodynamics properly and focusing on the demands of a specific event or a prologue so i had something of value that, that would work there or at least for some years it worked um and that was very satisfying to do uh, and i enjoyed that for, for quite a few years i remember and i don't know which tour it was but watching uh, tv and you on your bike and one of the uh, tv motos came next to you and I think you were addressing directly your son almost, saying, yeah. um, this is what I do when I go away. It's not fun. I'm not on holiday. Do you remember well, that, that? That's what my wife always tells, tells the kids, um, yeah, your dad's just going on holiday with his friends. Uh, that's what she used to say about going to work, yeah. So we were riding along. I, I can't remember what tour it was. I think it was 96, and it rained for the first week. And so it was just miserable, scary ride along, waiting for this massive skidding crash. Uh, for for a week and it was just horrible so yeah i think when when i recognized one of the channel four camera bikes it was an opportunity to put the record straight you enjoy um being part of the tour still but in a in a in a different uh, in a different role it's very different now and i would say that the the bike race is just a portion of it uh, what i enjoy is making things and I've always enjoyed making things, be it out of wood or an article or setting up a coach development program. I just like making things. And we go to the tour with a small eclectic group of people who squabble and fight their way around France every year. And we make a television program. 
and every day there's two television programs going every day a live and highlights program and at the start of the day you don't know what that is and that's quite exciting and scary thing to do and very satisfying because it's it's such a small group that everybody chips in and makes this thing um and i enjoy the making of it and the bike race is a part of it and it molds what it is that you make so i think i enjoy it for different reasons i certainly enjoy at the end of the day walking away and having a beer on occasion when we haven't got a massively long drive to do who's your tip for this year's tour and be aware that Ned Bolting and David Miller are listening to this. Well, I mean, they're, they're a lot more race-honed than I am by virtue of doing hours and hours of commentary and, and uh, honestly working on the Dauphiné right now. So they're seeing who's on form just at the important time. But I, I would, I think, not sidestepping the question that I don't know, which is a really exciting prospect. I think you've got Chris Froome who's in a good place, but not Domino's. You think you've got Alberto Contador, who's going to be better than he was last year. You've got Naira Quintana, who last year realised in the last stage of the tour, probably believed fully for the first time, I can win this race. You know, I was closing the gap. I was seconds away from being on the top step. So you've got at least three people, and there will be surprises as well, that could, um, that could take the race. Uh, and I think that's really exciting. You're increasingly known for your cycling advocacy and your sort of uh, advocacy of cycling, not as a as a sport, but as an everyday activity. Are you optimistic about the way things are going in the UK in particular at the moment? Yeah, it, it's, it's a very emotional thing for me because it's so logical and there is no reason why we wouldn't prioritise cycling and walking for short journeys and it would answer all of the problems the vast majority of the problems it would go a long way to answering a bit of pollution or congestion or health or societal and so on and so forth and the fact that we have to campaign for it is infuriating but it's the i would say it's the most important thing i've ever been involved in and i would ever if i was remembered for anything i would hope it would be this not not riding on a bike faster than other people and if we could make bikes the the a normal form of transport for normal people in normal clothes that would be a proper Olympic legacy for me, that we change the way we get around. Is it going to happen? I think it has to, actually. I mean, and that's one of the things you're seeing in London right now. It isn't through any kind of benevolence or or a different philosophy that transport for London and investing in cycling. They've just realised that if we're breaking pollution levels for an entire year in the first week in parts of London, uh, we have to change this. There's no other way around it. Um, so... I think you've got the equivalent of a tube train full of people is coming into London every month and not leaving, then you have to change the way people travel. And that's got to reflect the rest of the country. You know, you've know, got to assume if it happens in the capital, it will happen elsewhere. Um, so I think, yes, change is inevitable. It's just going to take a lot longer than it should. Have you been on the newly opened um, bike routes, the Blackfriars Bridge and the Canary Wharf one? Only a little bit. I tend to walk in London for, for a couple of one logistical reason that I get off a train where we'll only take four bikes, you've got to book them in advance and so on and so forth. Um, and the other is it's easy to walk around. I take the easiest solution, which is what people do. So I have, um, but very only very briefly. And I was talking about it last week to Ned Bolting about how you, you, you're OK and you ride on London Street and then you turn on to a piece of superhighway, which uh, we did, in or I did a couple of weeks ago, around Brick Lane area. And there's a sense of relief when you turn onto this protected space and you didn't realise that the tension was there until you get onto this protected space and suddenly it's, oh, this is really nice. And that's the feeling. You know, a lot of people 
more than 90% of our population won't ride a bike until you give them that. Nearly time for you to go, but uh, can I ask you to do one thing? Take a look through um, this issue of Rouleur, and if there's a photo that takes your, well, there was takes one, your actually, eye... There was one when I was flicking through before, I'll see if I can find it now, and it was a, it was a black and white of uh, Nairo Quintana sitting having a think, and there you go, it's on page 34, facing the press... Um, because I don't know, he's, he's a very um, expressionless individual. So what's going on in his head, you don't know. He's a very quiet guy. And I, I love black and whites because for some reason there's en the, the enigma, the paradox with black and whites is there's more information in a black and white than there is in a colour picture. And I don't know why that is. Um, and I just, I like enigmatic pictures like that where you have to interpret what's going on and it shows you emotion. It's, it's, it doesn't spell it all out for you. And I just uh, I wonder what's going through his, his mind right now as he heads towards the tour. It is an extraordinary picture, isn't it? He also looks younger in that picture than he normally does. I mean, for such a young man, he does have quite an old face, doesn't he? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't look at it and say it's, it's an almost line-free face, so it's hard to decide an age. It's hard to decide what he's thinking. Um, he is just enigmatic, and uh, I think that makes him all the more interesting. Chris Bourbon, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, do you have a message for uh, Dave Miller and Ned Bolting before we go? Yeah, don't sit on the fence like I did. So Chris Boardman there uh, throwing down a challenge uh, to you two to actually pick just one winner rather than saying it's the most open race in years, which is uh, which it may well possibly be. Uh, and I should say that um, in previous editions of the podcast, Johan Mazeo picked uh, Sargon to win the Tour of Flanders and Stephen Roche picked Nibali to win the Giro. So, so no pressure. Whew. What do you think? I got Contador, just for, and it's just because choosing more heart than mind. I've said this before. Mine says Froome, but just because he is the two-time winner and his and his team's incredible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But Contador, I think this is almost his kind of hail hail Mary, and at the moment he's looking good, and and I just also think that he goes down fighting. So, you know, I, as a fan, as a kind of cycling fan and a lover of it, I'm just going to go for the kind of the slightly. Well, it's not very off the wall, but Contador. Okay. Yep. Uh, I think it's Nairo Quintana's year. Yeah, I think he'll really hurt them in the mountains. You said that about a year ago, I think, when the last time you appeared on the... Did uh, I? Uh, which was just uh, after the last time. Well, country yeah. one year. <laughs> yeah, just, just replay last just year. By just inconsistent, you know, at least. <laughs> I haven't got a clue. <laughs> Boardman boxed us into a corner there, didn't he? Both Froome and Quintana have had sort of slightly mixed seasons, haven't they? Well, Froome's approached it in a different way, completely from every other uh, season where he's you know, looked to 2013 and 15 and to a certain extent 14 as well, um, where he's looked to win every GC race that he's entered. He hasn't entered as many and he hasn't won as many. Um, so he's, been, he's kept his uh, form invisible up to this point. Having said that, we're recording this on stage four of the Dauphiné and it's probably going to go out after the Dauphiné's finished, which he'll probably go and win, making me look rather foolish. But... Um, now, that's well, either one of two things, isn't it? It's either his form's not there and he's worryingly behind schedule or, as a, as a point David was making in the commentary the other day, or he doesn't need that reassurance, that psychological reassurance anymore that he can win stage races and that he's already got that in the locker um, because he knows he can. And it might be the, you know, emblematic of the fact he's just exuding confidence in his own ability. I, 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 think he's, I think David's probably read that quite well. I think knowing Froome, do not underestimate 
you know how much of a steely winner he is i think that probably is the case and um you know, he'll make mugs of both me and David for predicting Contador and, and Quintana. I did say my mind. You did. Is through. You did. You kind of hedged your bet. <laughs> <laughs> Nibali will win it. <laughs> like, yeah, you know what? Vincenzo Nibali will win Him it. Him and Alberto on a long, yeah. random breakaway. Yeah. That could happen. Yeah. But it's quite, that's what I said. Uh, brilliant, isn't it? Because you've got Alejandro Valverde on the team of uh, Nairo Quintana. You've got Fabio Aru and Vincenzo Nibali. Got Geraint Thomas and Chris Froome. Got Richie Port and TJ. You got Richie Port and TJ. So each each team's got a lieutenant that is a a capable winner. So it's going to make it really interesting. And you got a resurgent Thibaut Pino. You've got an interestingly, you know, still strong rider, Roman Bardet. Probably not good enough this year for a podium, but you know he's there, isn't he? Um, All you need is 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 Christ fighting Chavez, and we've got you know it's an exciting. I think we're about to embark on an exciting era of Grand Tour. Stages. Then they're all going to crash the first week. We'll just be left with two fighting out for two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) That also. Saga will win it. Yeah, Saga will win the Tour de France. All that remains then is the ruler competition. Last month, uh, we asked, in what year did the Giro cross a pontoon bridge to finish in St Mark's Square in Venice? Either of you know? I wasn't watching the Giro. (laughs) It was quite recently. 1978, right? <laughs> it's not yeah, yeah. It's not recent at all, is it? Not that recent. I think it did start in, it started in Venice. It started in Venice relatively recently. Yeah, 2011 yeah, or something like that. Yeah, I did yeah. that when we got second. We screwed up the start of the team time trial. Lost six seconds in the first K. VDV went off and went off all soft. His fault. His fault, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have won it otherwise. Went off all soft. <laughs> That's a technical term. Yeah, yeah no, we did have another word for it. <laughs> <laughs> Had to replace it at the last second. John, if Boardman can swear, you can swear. <laughs> yeah, we expect it from you. Uh, yeah, so 1978 uh, was the answer. Michael Hedger wins a Marco Pantani mug and a DeMarchi cap. This month's question, actually, uh, David, would you be able to read that out for us? Yes, I can. How many times has Nairo Quintana ridden the Tour de France? And you're not allowed to say the answer, okay. even if you know it, or if well, you've got it written super, down in your Super Nairo fan should know here. Old Ned. You're not allowed to He's just looking anyone. at it in just uh, totally Possibly. He's, he's holding up some fingers. fingers. It's possible. We'll see. Uh, for prizes, uh, we have copies of Chris Boardman's excellent Triumphs and Turbulence. Oh, reason- reasonably good Triumphs and Turbulence. <laughs> no, it's a superb book. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's excellent. But the thing is, he doesn't need the money, does he? Let's be honest. <laughs> He always gets annoyed at me. <laughs> Every time I see him, has money going, Chris? <laughs> What's it like being rich? A wave of cash has just broken over my head. <laughs> they were the very words he said to me when he sold his company to Halfords. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's a shame he's not here, really, to defend himself. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, he would punch me. He's sick of it. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, yes, for prizes, we have copies of Chris Boardman's either excellent or, uh, or pretty good uh, Triumphs and Turbulence. Go to the podcast page of the Ruler website. Full details of how to enter are on there. Thanks to Chris Boardman. Thanks to Ned Bolting and David Miller. Have a good tour, everyone. Take it easy out there. We'll catch you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 